Good morning, thank you for joining us here today. My name is John Roberts. I am the campus pastor at New Life Gladstone. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, this day that you've made. Lord, thank you that you are a God that we can depend on, a God that we can call to, a God that cares about each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that now as we dig into your word, that, Lord, uh, you would be glorified, your people would be uh, edified, that we would learn more about you, that our hearts would long for more of you. I pray that as we do this together, that, Lord, your uh, name would be made great. Give me the words to say um, and anywhere where I'm lacking, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, help everybody in the sound of my voice to be able to understand what it is that you have for each and every one of them. Lord, thank you. In your name, amen. Let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Make their loins tremble continually. Pour out indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who they have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the, the righteous. Wow. That is some ridiculously harsh language. That, that kind of language makes me uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? And the fact that that is in the Bible is even more disconcerting. That David, a man after God's own heart, would say that in the Bible. This is a key portion of the psalm we're going to be looking at today. If you would turn with me to Psalm 69, um, we're going to figure out what exactly that all means and why David would say that. This is called an imprecatory psalm or an imprecation. This is, means curses. Now, this type of language is very common in our day today. As a matter of fact, it is very popular on social media to rain down curses, to call people enemies, to wish for their destruction, and maybe even cancel them leading to their destruction. But yet, when I read that and I say, that's in the Bible, and I read that and I say that that's from someone who is godly, us as Christians, we kind of recoil from that and go, how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of it? Because these, these curses are popular in our culture, but not when it comes from the Bible. As a matter of fact, many will use this to say, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. We need to get rid of portions of the Bible because this is just not good. It's not nice. It's not loving. It contradicts parts of the Bible. Or does it? You see, this is in the Bible, and we need to read it, and we need to understand it rightly in its context. And so we're going to do that today, but before we do that, we need to think about what do we do when we're wronged? See, David in this psalm, he's been wronged. People have come after him. This lament, this, this uh, you know, letting go of emotions and sorrow is because of things that have been done to him. What do you do when bad things happen to you from people, when people wrong you? 
You know, some of us, we defend ourselves. We immediately say, well, no, no, I didn't mean that. Other times we go on the offensive and we attack the person that's attacking us. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by the attack that we attack somebody who's not even involved. Some of us, we curl up into a ball and we go off of social media or we avoid that person. Others of us pull out a pint of ice cream and turn on the Hallmark Channel. But even worse than all of that is sometimes we plan out how we're going to take revenge. Or we treat ourselves to the imagining of what it will be like when someone takes revenge on that person that wronged us. And usually the more uh, painful and destructive, the better. Is there a better way? Is there a better way? Are, are, are we right here in this psalm and we're no better than David? Or is there something else we can do with this? I, I personally, uh, I'm not a good example of this. I let things bother me. When someone confronts me, uh, many times I internalize it. And then I'll, I'll kind of treat myself to what I should have said. And I'll practice it or I'll, I'll say it out loud in the shower or in the car. It's an odd thing to see someone talking to themselves in the car. So usually I put an earbud in so it looks like I'm talking on the phone. But honestly, I would practice it. Oh, I should have said this. Or I, and I, I kind of hide that in my heart. That's not good either. That's not what David's doing here. Instead, David calls out to God and asks God to judge, God to curse. So how can we wrap our minds and more importantly, wrap our hearts around this? We've been unjustly injured. We are in pain. What do we do with that hurt and that desire to see those who hurt us be hurt? Is there space in our Christian life, in our Christian experience, to be able to understand this? And the answer is an absolutely resounding yes, there is. But we need to understand how to do it rightly. And so that's what this psalm is going to teach us. It's going to teach us where we go with our pain, what we do with it, and how we seek out justice. So before we do this, we got to get into the psalm. we got to talk a little bit about how it's laid out. And this will take us just a second. This is a lament psalm. And again, a lament psalm, we've seen several of these over the past few weeks and last summer as well, is a, uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a feeling uh, and expressing sorrow and grief. Laments are throughout the Bible. Lamentations, book of the Bible, is one long lament. And it's not just limited to the Old Testament. There's lament in the New Testament. Lament is not just releasing emotions. It's actually a form of doxology, which is that word for worship. It reminds us of truth, and then we exercise our faith in response to that truth. Usually, psalms of lament have three parts. They have a cry to God. They have asking God for help, and then they have a responding in trust and praise. Now, our psalm has that, but it kind of goes back and forth between, so we're not going to follow that real layout. Instead, we're going to follow the layout of the first 28 verses are the lament, 29 through 36 are going to be the hymn of praise. And so we'll see that basic structure. And one last little side note, this is the second most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament behind Psalm 22. So this psalm is not one we can just write off. Because the New Testament quotes it regularly. So how do we make sense of this? Well, we're going to just go through it exactly the way David put it out there. Because when we do, when we see verses 22 through 28 in their context, we can see how David got to that point. And I think that will help us understand how we would get to that point. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 6 is we see God, and specifically the names of God. 
David's going to invoke the names of God so that he's saying, this is who I'm talking to. I'm not just talking to some, you know, man upstairs or some genie in a bottle or anything like that. Instead, I'm talking to the God, my God. He starts in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. Now notice, this is the cry. He cries out to God. You're going to see a lot of water metaphors in here. You're going to see a lot of discussion of sinking and overwhelmed with floods and things like that. Verse 2, I sink in deep mire. That's mud. It's a bog. Where there is no foothold, I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal? Must I now restore? This verse is quoted by Jesus in John 15, verse 25, to encourage his disciples that people are going to come after you. And and again, this is a a picture of Jesus is hated without cause. We are going to be hated without cause. So Jesus is empathizing not only with David, but he's empathizing with us. Verse 5, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. He calls out to God and he says, you know I'm a fool. You know I'm an idiot. You know I'm a sinner. David's not sugarcoating it and going, well, I'm so good, God. Why don't you help me? He's not putting his works out there to say, I did these things, so therefore, God, you must do. He's saying, God, you know I'm, I'm, I'm rubbish. I'm nothing. I'm a fool. But still, come and, and, and be the one who invokes justice here. Can't hide from God who you really are. Verse 6, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Now, you'll notice that David is speaking to God. He calls him my God in verse 3. Throughout this psalm, 41 times David refers directly to God. And there's another 12 kind of allusions to God through indirect means. But ultimately, this is one out of every 10 word is directed to God. But this this verse 6 is incredibly powerful. Because when we read it and we see, Lord God of hosts, O God of Israel, we think he's going, God, 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 God. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually calling out on his history with God, the history that Israel has with God, the history that is in God's word. He's calling out to that by invoking these names of God. And there's actually four of them. In verse 6, the very start, Lord God of hosts. And we think of hosts, we think of someone who you know, delivers your food or when someone comes to visit, you, you host them. But that's not what that word means. This is angelic armies. This is a very powerful word. Some versions will translate this, Lord, Lord Almighty. So it's kind of, they double up on the Lord there. It's three names. It means Lord of the universe, the Lord of the covenant, and our divine warrior, right? That's just a cool way. I'm thinking William Wallace, Braveheart, that's our God. And that's what David is invoking here. Especially as someone who's fought in wars, David has, he is speaking out to this. These names and designations embody God's people's hope in him and who he is. So the three words for Lord God of hosts is Adonai, which speaks to God, the one who's over all. Yahweh, which is God, that is God's self-existent one. That's the I am name. 
from throughout the Bible. That is the God of the covenants. God swears by his name because there's no name higher. That's the name David's calling. And then Sabaoth, the, the God, the warrior. We also saw those in, in, in our psalm last week in 68, verses 11 and 12. So this Lord Sabaoth is, is this, you know, he wins every battle. He is the ultimate victor. And then we get God of Israel. So we've got the first three, Lord God of hosts, and then God of Israel. This is Elohim. It means mighty one of Israel. Probably a better translation would be the great king of Israel. Remember, Israel already had a king in God. It's only when they wanted to be like the other nations that they asked God for a human king. And God already was their king. And so what David is saying is Yahweh, the creator, judge, king, great warrior, the only one I worship, I want you to hear my request. See, David knows this God. This is not some random praying to some random thing and hoping that there's a response. David is calling on the one that he knows. And how does David know him? He knows him through experience. He knows him through the studying of God's word. And so David calls out to him. So that's the first thing we see, is that David calls out and uses the actual names of God to call on God to be who he says he is and who he knows he is. Then in verses 7 through 12, David again kind of laments. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, I became my, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and drunkards make songs about me. So David says, here's the God I worship, here's what I'm dealing with, and then we see in verses 13 through 16, not only does he call out to God's name, but he's going to call out to God's character, which he summarizes in one word. One word which is a very powerful word. And we've, we've talked about it before, but I'm going to get to it here in a second. So not only does David know God's name, but he knows his character. When he calls out to God throughout this psalm, we see how David believes God's going to respond. God knows everything. God will deliver him. God will save him. God will hear him. God will love him. God is merciful. All of these descriptive words. And ultimately, these descriptive words are found in one word, hesed. Hesed. And we'll get to that here in a second. I want to show you where it is in the passage. Don't take my word for it. Verse 13, but, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me. Or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Now, Hesed was right there in the middle of that. We see it, it's the word steadfast love. This is an incredible word. It's, it's a word that in the Bible, multiple different ways it's translated because it's a difficult word to get around. Not because the word is confused, but because it's such a bigger word than we can do one word translations of. So we translate it steadfast love. We translate it as faithfulness or God's loving kindness. This is a God-sized love. It's that agape love, but it's even more than that. In the Psalms, the Psalms contain half of all the uses of the word hesed. 
And then David's psalms are the ones that most likely have it. If you're reading a psalm of David, most likely it's in there. It's a difficult word to define. We take the word hesed, and one author actually defined it with a whole paragraph, seven sentences to describe this one Hebrew word. It reminds me of a German word. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. It's the word kumrspect. I had to look this one up. Kumrspect, which means to gain excess fat by comfort eating, especially when stressed. So again, there's a one German word, and we have to have a whole English sentence just to explain it. Well, this is like hesed, except for hesed is much more serious than kumrspect. This idea of hesed carries love, compassion, affection, but it also has loyalty and reliability. Hesed is not merely love, it's loyal love. It's not merely kindness, it's dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but it is committed affection. I found a definition. It's, it's a decent one for being so short. It's when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. You see, this word hesed is as close to one word that covers the entire gospel. It's this idea of I deserve nothing, but I've gained everything. I was given everything. There's no word in any language, straight across word for word definition, in any language ever that comes close to this. Perhaps the reason is not because of linguistics, but because this word is a spiritual word. You know, we don't see any references of any of the, the, the false gods being referred to as having hesed. There is no, there's no ancient hymns to Baal or Molech or Osiris or Zeus or any other pagan gods of hesed because it's an incredibly foreign concept. It's a concept solely attached to the God of the Bible. And if it wasn't already important and big enough, the word hesed also has an idea of reciprocity, which means giving back to someone what you've received. And so this idea of hesed is if you receive from God, then the only way to show that you've actually understood it is by giving away to others. And it's this back and forth. Hesed is defining, is the, the defining characteristic of God. It is linked to all other characteristics. And that's why David calls on it twice here. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love and abundant mercy. He's saying the steadfast love is the root and the fruit keeps going off of that. These three attributes that are mentioned here, the love, the faithfulness, the mercy, compassion, they are the same exact words used by God when he made his covenant with Moses in Exodus 24. God is faithful to his covenant because he is faithful. His, his defining characteristic is that faithful love, that committed hesed love. So David didn't learn these through creeds and through books about God or about the Bible. He learned it through the Bible. He learned it through a relationship with God. And so the first, these first two points of understanding God's name and understanding God's character impart on us this, we need to know this God. If this God of the Bible exists, he definitely deserves our entire attention. There's nothing more important, nothing more uh, out there that we need to be looking at other than him. And that's what we, we see here, is that David is able to, to weather these storms because of who he knows and who his hope is in. Now, verses 17 through 21, he again says the things that are bothering him. Hide not your face from your servant, 
for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My foes are known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, and I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now this next section is the one we started with. This imprecatory. This section where it's like, that's in the Bible? Really? Remember, this, this calling down of curses is, is not something we expect from the loving God, but yet we see it here. Some would want to, like I said before, leave this and, and just kind of throw it out, but ultimately the Bible, the New Testament, quotes this. Verses 4, 9, 21, 22, 23, and 25 are all quoted at different places in the New Testament by Jesus himself, by Paul, by Peter. Because ultimately, Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. We saw that last week when Scott was explaining Psalm 68, and he used Scripture to explain what was going on in Scripture. And so we're going to do that as well, but we're going to actually just use the context of this psalm to understand this. Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. So there's two waves of, of, of curses called down. One is physical, and it's the blindness, bent backs, homelessness, no safety or harmony. And then we see a second wave, which is spiritual. He says, no tasting salvation. Don't write them in the book of life. Don't treat them with righteousness. 23, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecuted him who they have struck down, and they recount pain for those you, of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, that blotting out of the book of the living, this is a community book to say who's alive and who's not. It was something that was used back in this time period. This isn't the book like we see in the scrolls, uh, the life uh, books in Revelation. So it's not, that part at least, not specifically dealing with um, heaven or hell. It's dealing more with who's alive and who's dead. So these imprecatory section, it's hard to read. It's hard to understand calling down curses on one's enemies. You know, we, we look at it and we kind of go, ah, David, why, why are you including this, right? We kind of go, you're putting all this feeling and all of this, uh, but can we really judge him on that? Because if when we're crushed, when, when Yahweh's people are crushed and afflicted, if they have no one to fight for them, no one to speak their cause, then what hope can they have? Only a God who rights the wrongs of all people, rights the wrongs, can help us through our troubles. We, we see that David is committing this vengeance to God. God, you take care of it. I'm not going to do it. Now, it would be really nice if David just did this one time. That would, again, provide us with the opportunity to say, okay, he's just having a bad day. Sorry, David. But that's not what we see. We see in Psalm 41, verse 10, does something similar. Psalm 109, verses 6 through 20. 137, verses 8 and 9. And in 139, verses 19 through 22, these are all times that David calls out curses. So 
does this law of love in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, really clearly seen in the New Testament through Jesus, does that, does that supersede the law that we see here of God's justice? Or is there a way to balance them out? Well, we need to take the Bible at its word. God says in Deuteronomy 32, 35, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. So what? How do we make sense of that? Well, if we think that this is a mistake and that David's calling down of curses is wrong or inappropriate, we need to consider these next few things. So let's walk through these, and this will hopefully help us to kind of understand what David's doing here. The first thing we see is that these imprecations, these imprecatory words, these, this curse shows a proper outrage for sin. Sin, even directed at David, is still sin. And so David is justified in saying, you're violating God's standards. Stop. Number two, David is God's kingly representative. So anything done to David is like they've done it to God. And so David is standing for God's character. Just like you or I, we, if we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We are his temple. And so when we are treated unjustly, there is a response that is correct in that we trust God to fix that injustice. Number three, we see that in asking God to punish evil, he's actually appealing to God's righteous judgment. Like we see in Jeremiah eleven twenty, As a descendant of Abraham, he is appealing to the faithful promises where, where God says, whoever curses you, I will curse. Genesis 12, 3. So we see that this is David appealing still, just like he was in the first two sections, appealing to who God is. Fourth, and I think this is probably the most important one for us, is that David does not take personal vengeance. These are prayers to God for God to rouse himself and to, to act against the wicked. We see David takes such restraint when it comes to people that have hurt him. Think about how many times Saul tries to kill him. There were many times where David had an opportunity to hurt Saul. And David says, I'm not going to act against God's chosen, even if he's in sin, even if he's hurting me. So David lives out this model, not taking matters into his own hands. And I think that's what we see here in this psalm. The fifth thing we see is that David is acutely aware that he might be in sin. We see that at the beginning when he talks about himself being a fool. But we also see it in Psalm 139 where he says, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And I think that's where we have to be. When we, when we are confessing to God the things that we have felt and what we want him to do in response, it's a good way to make sure we're not in sin about it. Number six, Christians... We as Christians need to make sure we understand that the Old Testament's not the only place where this kind of cursing and harsh language is used. Jesus, as a matter of fact, uses it in Matthew 10, Matthew 11, and Matthew 23. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians, and the saints who are in God's presence in heaven, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, they all call down curses. So we need to understand this isn't an Old Testament versus New Testament. It's continuous all the way through. And then lastly, we need to understand that these, these curses are not always absolute. There is an inherent um, call for repentance by David for these people that have hurt him. 
and, and calling on God's mercy to, if these people repent, to let them go. They are now under the covering of Christ's suffering for justice as opposed to what they need to suffer for justice. Remember, Nineveh, Jonah goes there and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then Nineveh repents. And God doesn't go, well, I said I was going to... No, he says, good, they've repented. And so we, we see that. We also see people that didn't repent and the destruction does happen. Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of that. And so we see back and forth, God doesn't want to destroy them, but he does want to keep his justice. And so there's that opportunity. See, David was afflicted, but it was because he was so in tune with God's heart and so confident in his justice that he could trust in this God. We are not to do the whole harboring, holding on to thoughts about how we would commit vengeance or that we want to see them destroyed. Instead, we need to trust the vengeance to a merciful God. We turn our anger over to God and let Him act. These prayers do not ask God for resources so I can commit vengeance. Instead, it's God, you have the freedom, you know what to do. And see, David's able to get to this point where he can say these words to God and trust God because of the God he knows and the character of God that he knows. Now we get to verses 29 through 34. This is the turn. Every, almost every psalm has a turn where it goes from the complaint to the faith to the trust. And aren't we glad that we're not left at verse 28? We actually have hope. And I don't know how anybody could do it without hope. But we have hope. 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Notice, nothing has changed. David's situation is still dire. God has not poured out his wrath on these people. Nothing has changed except for David has laid it all out there. God, I hurt. God, this is terrible. Please take care of them. He's just laying it out there. So as we see this, this turn, we need to remember, one, we got to put the retribution in God's hands. All of it goes into God's head. All of these things which the psalmist prays are God's actions. In the same breath, though, we pray these kinds of things. We should also be praying for God to forgive those who have hurt us. Romans 12, 17-21. And extend grace to them. So that's one thing we need to remember. The other thing we need to remember is that we may not be going through this right now, but other believers are. And it's our job as believers to come alongside them and remind them of these things that this psalm is talking about. Even if we're not suffering right now, let's never neglect to remember those who are. Jesus identifies with their suffering, even if it results in death. If God went so far to stand in solidarity with the suffering of the world, how can we do any less? We need to be right there with them. We need to feel the agony with them. Verses 31 through 32. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see that, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Now right here we see, we see that little hint that I spoke of about the repentance that David is kind of hoping will happen. He's railing against these people. God, God, just pour out your wrath. But there's that picture of, yes, there's a place for them to repent. God has promised judgment. And surely it is right to pray that God's promises will come true. 
we also have to remember that if we diminish God's justice and his pouring out of wrath, then it diminishes what Christ did on the cross for each and every one of us because we all deserve 22 through 28. But when we're in Christ, he took that and we get Christ's life. You see this right here in 33 and 34. For the Lord hears the needy, that's us, and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him the seas and everything that moves in them. So we've come full circle. We've come to the gospel. We see that Christ's work on the cross takes away 20 through 28 that we deserve and places it on Christ so that we can pray for those people to repent. This psalm is another reminder that lament can turn to doxology, to worship. Verses 35 through 36, we conclude with Jesus and this resurrection. For God will save Zion. That's the hill on which Jerusalem is built. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now David's writing this, and he's in Jerusalem, most likely. So what is this talking about? Well, this is talking about at the end of time when the new Jerusalem comes down. This is the communal application of this psalm. David's been saying all this stuff's been happening to him. God, pour out your wrath. And then we see that turn where Jesus is the solution. And now we see celebration. We see the offspring. We're adopted into his family. What is clear here is the hope that the Lord will restore his people, strengthen them, and permit them and their children to enjoy his benefits. The hope of the godly must always focus on this restoration of all things when the Lord will establish his righteous salvation to people all over the earth. So anger and angst, what do we do with it? We can try to solve it through our Facebook posts, our social media posts. We can try to solve it through defending ourselves. We can try to solve it through all sorts of means. Or we can do what David did, and we can take it to the God, the creator, the sustainer, the king, the great warrior. When that next Facebook post comes, when that person reacts to you incorrectly, when someone screams at you in the grocery store, when you're cut off on the freeway, whatever that hurt may be, those are pretty small, and there's bigger hurts out there. We are to do what David did and to take it to the God who we can trust and the God that we need to know because he is trustworthy. That is my prayer for you guys today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Lord, you are the God who made us. You are the God who keeps his promises. You are the warrior God. You are the king God. And Lord, we can come to you because of your hesed, your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your committed love that pours out to us things that we don't deserve. And Lord, we can cry out to you with our pain and our anguish because you hear us and you will solve the situation for your glory. Whether that is through judgment on those people or through judgment on your son and the repentance of those people. Lord, what an incredible picture you give us right here in this psalm of what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. Help us to go about our week 
living under that. In your holy and exalted name, amen.